Global Crisis Bible Prophecy Health and Preparedness You are just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch How do you get to the point where within a culture, academia if you will, that everybody becomes so like-minded, that thought becomes so blocked in with one, within one box? I actually experienced this right out of the gates in my college department of education. As a history major, I remember one of the very first things I remember hearing was, now you can write a paper in this class and you can research on just about you know, anything you want, and, but... Please don't do any research. Do not submit a paper to me on the John F. Kennedy assassination. Now, at the time, I thought, well, that's weird. Why can't you do a paper on JFK assassination? And he said, well, it's conspiracy theory, and that's why. So it's not allowed. So this sort of history that we've been doing for the last two sessions is not permitted in the academia. You're, you're, you're given an article, a very important article about, called The Paranoid Style in American Politics that inducts you into scoffing at anything conspiratorial. And so you're just not supposed to go there. Just like if you're wondering how the history becomes so controlled, to share a quick story with you from my own experience. When I got into the master's level of the social sciences, social sciences was history, political science, and economics. I thought about studying national security studies as my master's degree. And so I got into the first class, the 401 level class of the master's program, and this is the introductory national security studies class. National security studies means, you know, intelligence, defense department, warfare, you know, international relations, all of that. And the first book we read was written by Nikolai Machiavelli. And it was called The Prince. If you're familiar with Machiavelli, he's famous for advocating a political philosophy, which we would call the end justifies the means approach. He talked about how the the prince or the government official needs to engage in the noble lie, he called it. Sometimes you need to deceive your public for their own good. And so basically you need to do things as an official in governments that wouldn't be moral for the rest of people, but you just need to do these wicked things in order to maintain power, in order to maintain order in the society. And after reading this, I get back to class, I figure we're all going to, you know, speak about this and say, yeah, this is crazy stuff, isn't it? And I get back and the climate in the room is, yes, this is important. Yes, we must do this. And, and there, there's no criticism of Machiavelli's theory. And I'm sitting in my chair going, wait a minute, uh, am I the only one that didn't agree with this? Um, and, and so, you know, I contribute my thoughts to that and look out. Oh, boy. Now you're marginalized. And now the discussion is, we got we to gotta eliminate that viewpoint. This was the first class in the master's program for national security studies at the university I attended because you have, they have you reading Machiavelli as it, to induct you into this way of thinking. And so at this point, I'm not going to fit into this program. So I just check out. I didn't realize it was sort of a weeding out process, but I said, I'm not going to go into this program. This is not for me. So I launched into the social science program where it was government, economics, and and history. Now, in the, in the social science program, I sort of played ball. I didn't, you know, do a lot of dissent, and I kind of wish I could go back and do more of that, but, you know, I wanted to get the good grade and please the education departments and, and, and get the leveling up there in the, in the, in the pay scale and get, my, get the master's degree with the good grades, so get it on my resume. You know, I wanted to be a part of that system, and 
Anyway, at the time, I didn't, I didn't question much. But when it came to my last class, maybe I was getting a little, a little reckless, a little, uh, a little adventurous. I, I came to the professor. It was a, 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 a class on globalization. And I said, I'd like to do a paper, a research project, because we all got to choose our own research project. I said, I want to study the forces behind globalization, because it's not just some inevitable thing. I mean, certainly the Internet has bound us closer together, but there are also agendas and and movers who at the high levels of society want to see this thing go forward and want to see a one world system imposed. And he said, okay, you may do that, uh, but just make sure not to do any conspiracy theories. So he did say that. And so I studied the, the organizations, the groups, the private meetings, the secret gatherings of the elite who, who have this viewpoint of it, what you might call a new world order. And I, I worked really hard on the paper. I, I, I did my absolute best, presented it to the class. The students were, were loving it. They were like, man, this is really interesting. But then I got my grade back from the professor. And it was marked up with no conspiracy theories. You may not talk about this. You may not talk about this. And he gave me a C. Now, this is the first C that I have ever gotten, okay, ever. <laughs> and I'd gotten straight A's through this. You know, I told you I played ball, and I'm not proud of that. You know, they gave me the most outstanding student award, which is actually kind of shameful to me that, I, that you know, I got all these A's and pleased all these, but gave all the professors what they wanted to hear. I kind of wish that I would have been more of an independent thinker when I did that. Uh, but I was for this project, and independent thinking was not allowed. You get a C. It was the only time I got a C in that whole program. Isn't that something? And then I had to take one more class, too, that same semester as I was finishing up my master's program. I needed to take a political science class. And it just so happened that the top-level class of the other program that I had left, the National Security Studies master's program, that their top-level class was meeting at a time where I, could, where I could go. And so I signed up for that, sort of be a fly on the wall. You know, I'm not in their program, but it's a political science class, so I can count those credits toward my social science master's. Now, I said this is the top-level class. This was really heavy. This was really serious. It was at uh, the, literally the top floor of a, of a big building with you know, glass all around us and you know, overlooking the campus and this boardroom setting and all the students sitting around. So they're sort of you know, giving us this feeling like you have now reached the ivory tower experience here. And, and I'm not even in the program. I don't know how they let me into the class, but here we are discussing things. And I remember one discussion was very interesting. By the way, all the students around this table are the ones who are going to now go and work for the Defense Department, the FBI, CIA, the think tanks, the American Enterprise Institute, all these different, different groups. And so they're asked a very important question. If there happened to be a major attack, some sort of terrorist event, in Manhattan where, where there was a nuclear attack, what would you propose we do as a, as a country, as a government? You're the future policymakers of America. What happens? I'm sitting here listening as they go around the room, and I'm the last one on the line, and I'm hearing full-scale invasion of, you know, Iran, or targeted first strikes of, of such and such a place, or, you know, special forces invasion over in this area, or just carpet bomb, Mecca and Medina, you know, all these different, different answers. And it gets to me, and I said, the first thing I would do is find out who did it, which I thought was a reasonable answer, but they all looked, and then and I said... And maybe ask questions about whether American foreign policy may actually stir up resentment and anger. And this is not to justify it, of course, but you know, you want to start to say, hey, let's let's reexamine our own our own policies as well. No, you don't do that. Oh man, that really puts you way out there. And so again, 
all the attack, all the, 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 the criticism came at that point because you just went way outside the box and you're not allowed to say that. And so that wasn't accepted. So I've told you these stories so you can see how thought can collect around a certain way of thinking, no matter the department. In this department, it was that way of thinking. Maybe in another department, it would be a different wing of the political spectrum over here. And the whole system is a system of keeping thought within the boundaries that are set by the opinion makers. And you heard from the congressional investigation, the foundations, the elite of society can influence opinion, can influence thought inordinately, and they can take control of this sort of thing to review about Prussianization of American schooling, which was just Jesuit education to the core, right? We looked at that as an economic force. And a lot of people look at back at that as an industrial era phenomenon. You know, it was, it was way back then that they did that. But today, you know, schools are really designed to help children to become the, you know, best and brightest that they can be. That's what we are aiming for. And certainly there are a lot of people in education who are aiming for that. Very few people align with the agendas of these architects of American schooling. Most people in schooling are, are well-intentioned. I certainly was and most of the people I knew. But it's still a toxic system in and of itself. It was conceived in iniquity, and you can try your best within this system, but you're still not going to be able to to overthrow the system as one individual in the system. But nonetheless, it is happening today as well. This this idea of creating a population of, of human resources, if you will. Now, what does that mean, human resources? If you talk in economic terms, there are a lot of resources in society, right? There are are natural resources. There's financial capital. But there's also human resources. It is a human being being reduced to an economic unit, an economic function, the human being as a resource. So we're, we're crafting the whole system around a student serving in the economy driven by client needs. Is schooling as necessary as we thought? Maybe people who succeed with lots of schooling are are succeeding in spite of schooling, not because of it in many cases. By the way, I should mention as a a disclaimer, dropping out and not having Prussian-style schooling is not a good thing in and of itself. It's what you replace it with that counts for something, right? The negation of Prussian schooling, I mean, you could just sit there and stare at a white blank wall all day, or you could play video games all day, and then you're going to amount to nothing, of course, right? I want to tell you the story also of David Sarnoff. He became the president of RCA, one of the most influential individuals in telecommunications history. Well, he emigrated from Russia as a child. He was completely unschooled when he arrived. He learned to read English in five months without any schooling. And then he began to sell newspapers at age nine to support their now fatherless family. His father had died at that time. By age 14, he owned his own newsstand. And he wanted to work at Marconi Wireless. So he saw an ad for an office boy job application. And he ran in. There was a line of 500 other boys. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to wait in that line. He runs right in. He opens the door, barges right in, goes to the boss and says, I want this job. I'll be the best employee you've ever had. And he he uses that, 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 that strength of fortitude. He was hired on the spot. And so by the end, by 24, 23 years later, he was the president of the company. All without any schooling, right? John Taylor Gatto, the New York City and New York State Teacher of the Year, has a very interesting comment on how David Sarnoff succeeded. He says the following. Sarnoff was able to move so rapidly also because he got a chance to think about serious matters before his eighth birthday, to live a significant life before he was 10. He got a chance to add value to his family and community before he was 15, and a chance to follow his own instincts and ambitions ever after. What school do you know these days 
that would allow all of that? And I can't disagree with his question. Really, maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. I love the story he also tells. John Taylor Gatto says, I once had a 13-year-old Greek boy named Stanley who only came to school one day a month and got away with it because I was his homeroom teacher and doctored the records. By the way, I don't recommend this. It's just an interesting story. Let's read on. I did it because of where he spent the time instead. Stanley had five aunts and uncles, all in business for themselves before they were 21. A florist, an unfinished furniture builder, a delicatessen owner, a small restaurateur, and a delivery service operator. Stanley was passed from store to store doing free labor in exchange for an opportunity to learn the business. This way, I decide which business I like well enough to set up for myself, he told me. You tell me what books to read and I'll read them. But I don't have time to waste in school unless I want to end up like the rest of these people, working for somebody else. After I heard that, I couldn't, in good conscience, keep him locked up. Isn't that an interesting story? Really, if somebody's got initiative and ambition, school may be doing more harm than good, as I said. This statement from Education says, The youth are sent to school to acquire knowledge by the study of books, cut off from the responsibilities of everyday life. They become absorbed in study and often lose sight of its purpose. Upon their graduation, thousands find themselves out of touch with life. And there is no doubt in my mind that this Jesuit-style, Prussian-style education needs to be re-examined just based upon this statement alone. It's disconnected from real life, isn't it? You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher, and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Prussian schooling philosopher Johann Fichte stated, Education should provide the means to destroy free will. Wow. Now where did the Prussians get their ideas from? Bertrand Russell explains that it was the Jesuit order who popularized the idea of school as social control and compliance training, where students were trained into complete docility. And tragically, this Prussian schooling brainwashing system was then exported to the United States and worldwide. It's time to wake up, to come apart and be separate, saith the Lord. The DVD series is called Schooled, the deliberate agenda to reduce individuality, destroy intelligence, and re-engineer society. In Schooled, you'll hear it straight from the mouths of the founders of modern schooling themselves. They're quite proud of it. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the soul? of men. Oh, you rescue the souls of men. In a study on divergent thinking, they actually found that 98% of children aged 3 to 5 scored in what would qualify as creative genius. So children, naturally, young children, have a curiosity, a way of thinking, a divergent way of thinking, a creativity that qualifies them to be a genius. Literally, everybody is born with genius capabilities. And there's something that happens along the line that beats this out of us, that trains this out of us. Because watch what happens after age three to five. After five years of schooling, they retested the same children 
and only 32% of them ranked as creative geniuses. After five more years of school, only 10% of them. And by age 25, only 2% of the population remain as divergent thinkers. Creativity, curiosity, initiative are natural human characteristics. School and media addiction sap the kids of their natural genius. I love what Albert Einstein said. He says it's a miracle that curiosity survives a formal education. And that's something. So what do we do with our out-of-the-classroom time? That's the question. Are we pursuing interests to see what God's calling in our lives is? Do we have a passion to learn academic knowledge and skills and how the world works and, and how to win souls and all of these important last days considerations to live a full life? Or do we just say, school is dumb and boring, so I'm going to go get entertained and immerse myself in media? That's the present reality. And people say, you know, these teenagers, though, they, they, they are just bored in school, and that's their fault. Well, maybe it's not. The longer kids are in school, when they're first in school, they're all rearing to go. They're excited. And the longer they're in school, the more bored they get and the more negative feelings they have towards school. And you know what lesson they learn in school more than anything else? The lesson is that learning is drudgery. That learning is boring. That learning is something to be avoided whenever possible for the most part. And believe it or not, kids, even in turn of the century, 20th century factories, these miserable, unsafe conditions, they were far happier there than in the Jesuit Prussian style schools that were coming in. Helen Todd published a report called Why Children Work in McClure's Magazine in 1913. She surveyed hundreds of children working in the factories who had escaped the compulsory schooling laws. And what we found is that 82% of the kids working there said that they would rather work in the factories than return to these factory schools, if you will. So these, these miserable working conditions were less miserable than Prussian schooling. And it's a modern example, too. In 1982, 8,000 Milwaukee children, youth rather, high school age kids who, were, who had left high school to work, they were asked the following question. If you could return to school and get paid the same amount that you get paid to work at this job, would you do it? You know what? Out of 8,000 of them, only 16 said that they would willingly go back to school and get paid for it. When people blame the teenager. They said the teenager is just a naturally apathetic age. It's adolescence. They just kind of float through life and they enter into this weird holding pattern before they become adults and they'll just grow out of it. Is this thing inevitable? It's not. Research has shown it. Research has been done on kids who have escaped the the, the compulsory schooling um, system, like homeschool kids, for example. They're not products of modern schooling. And so what is the difference? Through adolescence, they retain their natural curiosity, their zest for learning and for life, all the way through childhood and into adulthood, all the way through adolescence. They don't go through this period. You know, we have a five-year-old, right? A five-year-old is naturally curious. He wants to learn. He's about doing everything. He's asking questions. He loves life. He's creative. And then all of a sudden, we we assume, well, just because we've been taught that this is the way things are supposed to go, well, once he's five, he's supposed to go to school. And then he learns differently. He learns what he's told to learn and the way he's told to learn it. And this is a system. This is an organized method of learning. Now, of course, this is not to toss out all order and organization. If you're doing a home school, you know, you want to have some order in the day, but... The child doesn't, doesn't, doesn't get to exercise his curiosity, his natural inquisitiveness, learning and studying things that he desires to learn and study. No, 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 no. 
This system now needs to put him in place. And we've seen the results. We go from 98% of them being creative geniuses at age 3 to 5 to at age 25, only 2% being creative geniuses. It's virtually wiping out creativity from almost 100% to almost 0%. So no matter whether you're in school or whether you're homeschooled or whatever, the more time you spend outside of the classroom doing real things, studying, thinking, learning, learning practical skills, living life, serving others, doing things the way God designed it, the more happy child, children and youth are. Now, people might say, you know, in our 21st century age, things are different than they used to be. Watch this with the 21st century technology. This is amazing. The, the man on the screen that you see is Sugata Mitra. And he did an interesting experiment in Indian villages in India, the most poor communities. And, and he put these computers in public places. And with the internet. And the children flocked to these things to figure out how to use them and to learn. They're naturally wanting to learn. They're inquisitive, right? And, and kids who did not know how to read were totally ignorant. They now learned how to read on their own with, with each other uh, at the screens. And not just that, they learned things like about microorganisms and viruses and bacteria. And they started talking about this in their community. <laughs> you have to wonder if schooling as we know it is, is becoming obsolete and not completely. I mean, I don't want to toss out the concept of a school institution because, you know, we've been given a pretty good blueprint for that as the people of God, which we will talk about in the upcoming seminar, undoctrinated. But here's an example, um, Mr. Mitra and, and the Indian children that I really appreciate. Over half a century ago, though, Robert Ulick warned his fellow social planners, and he said, watch out, guys. We are producing more and more people who will be dissatisfied because the artificially prolonged time of formal schooling will arouse in them hopes which society cannot fulfill. So kids are going to be told, if you just stay in school, if you get the degree, if you go to college, if you do these things, then you will be successful. And he says, be careful. These hopes are not going to be fulfilled, and they're going to be disappointed. Over 72% of students who have finished college over the past few years in America have had to move back with their parents strapped with tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. 35% of college students say that they regret the time and money spent on the four years of college. Over half of them say, I pretty much learned nothing that was useful. So Robert Ulick's statement is being fulfilled today. And Abraham Lincoln, if we go back into the mid-19th century. He, he taught and believed that literally every person was capable of developing an independent livelihood, being a, a proprietor, being an initiator, doing something with your life where you're not just dependent upon others. He believed that being a laborer, a wage laborer, was a temporary condition on the path to doing something for yourself. And that sounds maybe so impossible, like we can't all do that. Is it impossible? Take a look at the Amish. The Amish today, almost 100% of them are proprietors of small farms or enterprises. Almost 100%. And their businesses have only a 5% rate of failure compared with American businesses, which are 85% rate of failure. Almost all businesses, startups, fail. The Amish, almost all of them succeed. And they were not given this success on a platter, a silver platter, by the way. They have faced unbelievable odds. Governments have, have tried to destroy their way of life, yet the Amish live prosperous lives. And they're not perfect. I'm not saying we should be like them or join them and you know, they're the model and standard for everybody. But the interesting thing is their society is virtually crime-free, divorce-free. They're not on welfare. Yet none of them have gotten even a high school diploma, let alone a college degree. 
They learn academically, they do, and through the eighth grade. But during this time, they're also learning practical things about real life. In the last century in America, we've seen the family has been destroyed. We have become dumber. We are dependent and we are spiritually empty. So I have to wonder, maybe the Amish are a lot closer to the goal than the rest of us. This man you see on the screen is named Carol Quigley. He's a very important individual because as a scholar, he was given the opportunity to study the secret records and the, and the, the files and papers of the, this, the organizations of the elite. And he wrote sort of the textbook on what you might say is the, the movement of the elite in the, in the 20th century, the, 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 the New World Order movement, you might call it. The book is called Tragedy and Hope. And actually, Bill Clinton referred to Carol Quigley in his acceptance speech for the Democratic National um, Convention when he was nominated as the candidate for the presidency in 1992. He says, I, I learned a lot from my, my mentor, Carol Quigley. Well, what does Carol Quigley have to say? In this book, he talks about you know, the, the, the movement of the elite and so on, and that's interesting. But he also had a speech. Right before his death, he gave a speech in 1976. And in his speech, he said the following. Now I come to my last statement. The final result will be that the American people will ultimately opt out of the system. Today, everything is a bureaucratic structure, and brainwashed people who are not personalities are trained to fit into this bureaucratic structure and say it is a great life. The process of opting out will take a long time. When Rome fell, the Christian answer was create our own communities. And that's what we can do, and that's what we've done. We can say, why do we need to be a part of that system? Opt out. Create our own communities. It's still legal. (laughs) I don't know for how much longer. But millions of Americans have just said, we're just going to educate our children at home and in the community. Don't, Don't waste your time trying to reform the schools, by the way. If you're looking at this, the schools must change. I learned a lot about the history of you're not going to change the system. Just opt out and say we don't need to be brainwashed, as Carol Quigley put it. It, the same applies with, you know, the way you view Hollywood. You know, you might have seen media on the brain and said, we're going to shut down Hollywood. Let's, let's wage a culture war. You know what? You can shut down Hollywood by unplugging it from your, from your own home. You can say, we're going to toss out all these video games. We're going to toss out the schooling brainwashing nonsense. We can take control of our own lives. If you're not happy with the medical system and the, 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 the philosophy that's happening in, in, in medicine in America, well, Study natural remedies, live a healthful life, and do things differently on your own, in your home, with your own communities, your own church. This is the beauty of living life God's way. You don't have to be victims of this system. Now, these two sessions that we've finished now have only been for the very limited the purpose of, of, of exposing the facade of modern schooling. What's really under the surface? What are the roots of it? But there is still a lot more that needs to be said. How do we opt out? What do we do instead? And so for the sequel of Schooled, be sure to take a look at Undoctrinated. How do we do true education, whether at home or whether on a school campus? I can't wait to do this seminar because it's, it's, we've just torn down the edifice. Let's build up something beautiful and wonderful that God has inspired us with. We'll look at the history of the homeschool movement. We'll look at the Adventist education blueprint and we'll say, wow, this is such a cool alternative to the mind programming, the Prussianization, and the Jesuitization of American schooling, schooling that has taken place in the last hundred years. We will be inspired to do something beautiful. But don't stick around for that. Study it for yourself. Read education. Read Fundamentals of Christian Education. Read counsels to parents, teachers, and students. And do something different. Let's close with prayer. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for a beautiful vision of how we are to train and educate our children. I pray that as we move forward from opting out of the enemy's plan and system, that we can look to you with obedience, with faith, and with a hope of something beautiful and wonderful, your soon coming. And Lord, we know we must be prepared by having minds that can think and discern. And we know that the enemy of souls, the powers of darkness, seem, seek to gain control of the human mind. And Father, we do not want to be victims of that last day's deception. So give us fortitude of mind, strength of character, and everything that we need to be prepared in preparing our children. In Jesus' name. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. No time, says the father. I have no time to give to the training of my children. Then you should not have taken upon yourself the responsibility of a family. By withholding from them the time which is justly theirs, you rob them of the education which they should have at your hands. You have brought children into the world who have had no voice in regard to their existence. You have made yourself responsible in a great measure for their future happiness, their eternal well-being, whether you are sensible of it or not, to train these children for God. It is the cry of many mothers, I have no time to be with my children. Then spend less time on your dress. Neglect, if you will, to adorn your apparel, but never, never neglect your children. What is the chaff to the wheat? Let nothing interpose between you and the best interests of your children. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.